Welcome to Backlog Books. My name is Kara. My pronouns are she, her. This is the podcast where I spend a little time talking about what I have been reading lately. Please be prepared for spoilers. Whether you are a 95 books a year reader or a one book a year reader, thank you for joining me. I'm not really going to do spooky books, even though it's October. Horror is not my genre of choice. In this episode, we will be covering a book by an author I somehow never managed to read in my four years as an English major in college. Today, we are talking about Mrs. Dalloway by Virginia Woolf. Here is the summary. Clarissa Dalloway, elegant and vivacious, is preparing for a party and remembering those she once loved. In another part of London, Septimus Warren Smith is shell-shocked and on the brink of madness. Smith's day interweaves with that of Clarissa and her friends. Their lives converge as the party reaches its glittering climax. Past, present, and future are brought together one momentous June day in 1923. It's been almost 100 years since this book was published. It first came out in 1925. My copy is 296 pages, and I read it between July 23rd and August 2nd in 2020. My copy is also so old that it lacks an ISBN or a publishing year. My best bet is that it's from the early 1960s, because ISBNs did not exist until 1965 and weren't in common use until 1970. Our author is Virginia Woolf, born in 1882 and died in 1941. You may have heard of her. Along with being a very prominent modernist writer and part of the Bloomsbury Group, she's considered one of the pioneers of stream of consciousness as a narrative device, which we will see in this book. I'm going to include an article or two about the Bloomsbury Group in the show notes if you want to read more about them. Suffice it to say, they were a group of artists and writers who were influential thinkers in literature, economics, feminism, and a lot more. It seems strange that I've never read any Wolf, especially given the fact that I have a BA in English. I didn't know much about this book when I started. I knew that Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself for the party, but that's about it. I was also a little nervous about picking it up because a friend suggested it to me. It's always nerve-wracking to read a book recommended by a friend. If I didn't like the book, I was going to have to change my name and disappear forever so that I didn't disappoint her. This is a difficult book to talk about in some ways. Not only because of the focus on the character's thoughts and inner life, but because it's almost a hundred years old. It's been studied and written about and dissected for decades. All I can offer that's new is my own reflections, and even those are shaped by other people's opinions. The atmosphere had to be just right to pick this book up. Usually, I listen to ambient music while I read, or instrumental music, but for this, all I could do was either sit outside and listen to wind chimes or turn on a white noise machine. The language is dense, sentences run on for paragraphs at a time and jump from topic to topic. This, however, is a facet of stream of consciousness as a narrative device. Our thoughts don't usually run in neat sentence structures. Set five years after the end of World War I, 
Mrs. Dalloway is a slow stroll through the streets and homes of London. So much of it is bound up in its time. There are many references and asides that I did not understand. One that I did look up was a reference to Mr. Willett's Summertime, which refers to William Willett, a prominent campaigner for Daylight Savings Time. However, I did let most of the references slip by me without looking them up. Having an old copy of the book meant there were no footnotes to help explain anything. In some ways, that helped my reading experience. I wasn't always getting interrupted with explanations. But I may have missed some obvious things because of not having footnotes, so I hope you'll be patient with me as I talk about this book. Mrs. Dalloway meanders through time and place as each character is introduced and we sink into their minds and thoughts. The characters are unmoored in time. They think of the past, and on the page, it's as real as their present. Our eponymous character is Clarissa Dalloway, a woman in her fifties who was throwing a party that night. She's the perfect hostess. She knows who to invite to create a wonderful evening. Later in the book, we find out that her friend and her husband think she hosts parties for silly reasons, for the attention or for the excitement. Clarissa, however, says she hosts parties because she loves life, and a party is her offering to life. She brings people together. Bringing people together in a welcoming space is a gift that certain people have to facilitate conversation and joy in being with others. That is a thing that I miss very much lately. We are over six months into being self-isolating to protect ourselves and others during COVID-19. I miss the feeling of being at ease with a group, not constantly thinking about masks and germs. Our characters dismiss Clarissa's skill with parties or don't think very highly of her, but her hosting may be my favorite thing about her. For Clarissa, throwing parties is the only thing she feels that she has of worth. She's growing older and her role in life is shrinking. She's a wife and a mother, roles which are defined by others, and her husband isn't around much and her daughter is growing up and becoming an independent person. Clarissa stands in her room and contemplates her bed thinking of how it will shrink over the years and how it has already shrunk. Alongside Clarissa, we follow her friend from adolescence, Peter Walsh. He's recently returned to England from India, and though he's there to get a divorce so he can marry a young woman, he's caught in thoughts of Clarissa and the past. When they were young, she refused his marriage proposal. He's not in love with her anymore, he insists over and over as he thinks about her and how she used to be and how she has changed and how she has stayed the same. The reader is very convinced. Peter and Clarissa meet for the briefest of moments. He stops in and visits with her for half an hour. They spend the rest of their day alternating between focusing on their present day and thinking of the summers they spent together running wild in the countryside, believing radical things and expecting so much out of life. Now they face each other as adults, settled in their lives, and must mentally compare their expectations as young adults to the reality. They are also thinking about the end of their lives. 
Clarissa is feeling the end approach and staving it off with parties and good cheer, and Peter is telling himself that he's not so old. After all, he's planning to marry a younger woman. This book is like Peter Walsh versus Mrs. Dalloway. Who was right in the past and who is right now? Who has the right way of thinking about their society and their places in it? And then you have the thread of Septimus and Rizia. Septimus is suffering from obvious PTSD and having hallucinations. His wife, Rizia, is so confused and wants him to be back to himself. She thinks he could be better if he just decided to be. The doctor who treats him initially, Dr. Holmes, is of the same mindset. He thinks Septimus is lazy and just needs to think of normal things and buck up. It's the predecessor to the yoga and vegetarianism can cure your depression school of thought now. It's such a frustrating thing to see as a modern reader. Mental illness is real and complicated. There's no one-size-fits-all solution. Septimus has moments where he is his old self, where the specters of war do not haunt him and he can joke with his wife. But those moments are infrequent. Rizia doesn't know what to do, so she takes him to another doctor, Bradshaw, who recommends that Septimus be put in a home far away where he can rest and not be bothered for several months. But this young married couple doesn't want to be separated. And I thought it was interesting that Holmes wants Septimus to fit back into normal society and Bradshaw wants Septimus to be completely removed from it so that you can't see him anymore and he's not bothering or disrupting quote-unquote normal society. What a sharp comparison between these people. Clarissa worried about her party and her family. Peter, trying to get a divorce and forget that he still loves his childhood friend. And Rizia, worried that her husband will kill himself because he keeps seeing the specter of his friend who died in the war. Each of them is facing their mortality in different ways. There's something that can be said here about the differences in concerns from people who are of a certain class or make a certain amount of money versus a soldier returned home with a wife from a foreign country. Though each of them is in a very different situation, they're all fighting back against the idea that everything ends eventually. In some ways, I struggled with reading this book. Part of that was because I was wrapped up in my head about it. It's a well-loved book, recommended by a friend, and I knew I would be writing a podcast episode about it. So I was watching my own reactions to reading it and wondering if they were the right ones, if I was catching everything I needed to catch and understanding all the nuance. But as quantum mechanics will tell you, the mere act of observing something can change its natural state. The characters know this too. Septimus is watched by the hallucinated ghost of his dead friend, he feels compelled by the ghost to write long, incoherent treatises on how to save the world. Clarissa's husband, Richard, faced with publicly buying a gift for his wife, can't do it. Even sitting in their parlor, 20 years of marriage between them, he can't say to her face that he loves her. Clarissa, observed by Peter during their brief meeting, is thrown back to being young and how she would act then, and they immediately fall back into old arguments. 
And what is the right way to act anyway? Clarissa's daughter Elizabeth is young and is still deciding how she will act. She seems torn between two influences, her parents and her tutor, Miss Kilman. What Kilman wants is to shape Elizabeth after herself, to make her a sort of legacy, one who will carry on Kilman's life and work like a child would. Elizabeth chooses to be with her parents, and in so doing, she breaks Miss Kilman's heart. In this post-war London, in these people's lives, the whole time, you're wondering why we're hearing such disparate stories. Why are we following Septimus and Rizia, the people seemingly least related to the eponymous Mrs. Dalloway? Their story is tragic. You can sense their desperation on every page as they seek answers and solutions. And indeed, they are the only ones who never cross paths with Clarissa, to my memory. They're perfectly sequestered away from her life. We've reached the beginning of the end. If you feel like there's not much of a plot here, you would be correct. So far, Clarissa is inviting people to her party, Peter Walsh is visiting, Septimus and Rizia are visiting doctors, and everyone is thinking more of the past than the present. It's like a normal day. Septimus and Rizia return home, laughing together and making plans for their future. The first doctor, Dr. Holmes, returns and brushes past Rizia. He's determined to speak to Septimus and convince him that Holmes has the solution to his problems. To escape the doctor and his cures, Septimus jumps out of the window and kills himself. Though the book has been building up to this, it's still a sharp shock. Rizia, now alone in a foreign country, goes to sit with her landlady. What else can she do? Her future just jumped out a window. At the party, at the end of the book, Clarissa spends all of her time making sure everyone is having the perfect evening. She's being a hostess, which is the thing Peter Walsh hates about her. She doesn't let herself get drawn into conversations. She's gauging the room and the conversations, and as soon as people relax and begin to laugh, she relaxes. She hasn't failed at this party. She's still a good hostess and won't be relegated to empty rooms to sit alone and uninvited. Dr. Bradshaw, who was Septimus's second doctor, the one who recommended that Septimus be taken to a home for months of rest, is at the party. And he mentions, in passing, that one of his patients killed himself that day. Just some nice, light party conversation. Upon hearing this, Clarissa retreats from the lights and laughter of her party. She stands and thinks about this stranger. How dare someone bring death into her party, her celebration of life? But as Clarissa stands in an empty room, thinking about the death of a stranger, she embraces the emotions she's faced with. Death cannot be avoided. We all walk toward it every day of our lives. Death is the natural end of life, and so it adds a layer over everything we see and do. Remember, it will all end. But the end doesn't mean you can't love life now that you can't find joy in little moments and in the people we surround ourselves with. 
The book ends with Clarissa emerging from an empty room and stepping into the metaphorical embrace of her oldest friends and her family. My final word on Mrs. Dalloway. This is a nice stroll through London with beautiful imagery and deep introspection. The language is a little dense, but once you're in it, it flows well. Try it out if you're interested in reading some wolf. I know it made me want to read more of her work. I do suggest that you find a newer copy of the book, which will explain the references to you. I know I ramble a little incoherently here and there, but this is a book that lends itself to incoherent rambling. Thank you for your patience. If you want more media like this, I'm not sure I actually have a recommendation for you. This is such a unique book. You can try the book The Hours by Michael Cunningham, which is vaguely based on this, I believe. You can also always pick up more works by others in the Bloomsbury group, like E.M. Forster or Vita Sackville-West. That's it. That's all I got. Join me next time for Letters from Transylvania. All right, I lied. We're going to do one spooky book this month. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast comments, questions, did I really misread Mrs. Dalloway? You can email me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.